Last week we uh, wrestled with the concept presented by the Hebrew word um, hineni, um, here I am, or here am I. And, and I know that, that that wrestling match is exactly what's in John's heart with what he shared with us today. Um, here I am, Lord, I'm yours. Um, John, thank you for modeling uh, and leading us in that way today. Um, May God be honored and the rest of us edified um, in this idea. Lead us. Whatever the circumstances, here I am. It should remind us of what Dr. Bob said in his sermon a few weeks back. There's a difference between here is my plan, Lord, bless it. And here is my life, Lord, use it. Those are different things. They had been challenged by this concept that we're being shown and being taught. Isaiah was challenges us with this phrase, Here I am, Lord, send me. Um, speak, your servant hears, your servant listens. We will see this difference over and over again in 1 Samuel. In this book, what happens when we honestly look at our lives and honestly turn them over to Him? What do we already know in our lives? that need to be changed, turned over to Him? What do we already know that's there? It's, it's always fascinating me in counseling when people will say, um, I don't know how to do this. I need some tools. I don't know how to love my spouse well, or I don't know how to lead my family well, or I don't know how to... And I will say, well, what's one thing? Or what's five things? What's three things that you could do? And they'll tell me. And I'll go, are you doing those? No. Okay, so the problem then isn't ignorance. The problem isn't that we don't know... The problem is we won't submit. We won't obey. We don't mean that. Here am I. Whatever you've got for me. Um, whatever my sins, whatever my conditions, here am I. Um, you know what I often see in worship is this. Those who know they have been forgiven much, love much. It's a powerful picture when we see I want us to come to this passage and continue to do so prepared with our hearts ready, which the team certainly and John's leadership has, has shown us that this morning. But I want us to pray together and confess. Father, we confess it is our temptation to make you comfortable to us. It's our temptation to recreate you in our image, or at least to be the type of God that we want you to be. We're not comfortable with your word, and we are comfortable with your truth. And Lord, I confess my temptation to think that you are willing to go along with my justifications. Lord, I, I pray that you would take me, take us, take this church and do with it as you will. We are here. Send us. Change us. Conform us to the image of your Son. We confess that we don't want to do that. Even though there's some part of us that does. Lord, we believe Forgive our unbelief. I pray you continue to lead us through your word today in your son's name. Amen. Just as a little side note, a little advertisement, um, in right now, in, or not right now, in next month, November 5th through 13th, you can look up the details at messiahsmansion.com. But uh, in Jefferson, Texas, they're going to set up a, a reconstruction of the tabernacle um, between November 5th and 13th. Uh, messiahsmansion.com. Again, we, we did a little, just a tiny bit of research. They don't seem to be some crazy, kooky cult group. 
though I wouldn't drink the Kool-Aid if it was up to me when I go, just in case, right? Just to be safe. But, uh, but they, are, they are going to have a restructured people in the correct outfits and, and all that kind of stuff it may bring to life. Not everyone gets to go to southern Israel and experience the one out in the middle of the desert there. So this is, Jefferson is closer. Um, so it may be a perfect opportunity for you to go and, and really get to create some concrete sense of what the tabernacle would have looked like and been like. And I do once again apologize for my voice. This isn't allergies or sickness. This is what dust and talking over bagpipes all day will do to your voice. Because <laughs> um, we had lots of those. Um, all right, 1 Samuel 3, 19, starting up, picking up there, wrapping up this chapter. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. What a great phrase. After his encounter with the Lord, apparently, young Samuel continues to grow. And as he grows, he grows up and the Lord is with him. His words had the effect that God intended. None fell on empty ears. Not one word apparently failed or fell. Now this is intriguing because we're actually going to see over the next couple of chapters uh, a pattern of things falling. In some cases, literally falling to the ground. It will not be Samuel's words. Everyone else around them but not these. Um, as we were doing some research, uh, uh, Paul McKenzie found this phrase to connect to this passage. Let none of his words fail or literally fall to the ground as a metaphor taken from archery. The arrow that falls to the ground fails to reach its target. In fact, it reminds me of the Greek word hamartia, to, to fail to hit the mark or to miss the mark. Anyway, the arrow that falls to the ground fails to reach its target. In contrast, all of Samuel's words hit their mark. They were effective because God found him to be a reliable bow for delivering his words. That's pretty good. Verse 20, and all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. Again, you could count on it. Everyone knew it from, from the farthest northernmost city to the furthest southernmost city. Everyone agreed and everyone knew Samuel was a prophet of the Lord. Now what's wild is Eli and his sons are still in the tabernacle. So there's this weird juxtaposition going on where everyone is honoring Samuel as speaking for God. Meanwhile, the priest and his sons, no one respects them. Everyone probably from Dan to Beersheba knew that Eli's sons were worthless guys. And yet those same people knew, I don't know how that played out for the years of overlap here, what that must have been like. 21, and the Lord appeared again at Shiloh for the, or Shiloh, for the Lord had revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Listen to that, the, the, word, the Lord there, repeated three times there. The very same things that we heard in the last few chapters, the word of the Lord is not in Shiloh. The visions of the Lord are not happening in Israel. There is no, the, the Samuel doesn't know the Lord or know the Lord's word. Well, all of that has been changed. All of that has been overturned. Now the Lord is back. The visions are back. The words are back. Samuel is his man. It's that clear. So we should, we predict then, that the next chapter is going to be a chapter of victory. That's what we would naturally predict. Man, God's back. His word is back. The people are there. They've got a prophet. They've got someone to lead them. This is going to be great. And then the next chapter is going to begin, and Samuel is not going to get mentioned. And God is barely going to be mentioned. See, it turns out having God's word is not enough. We've got to hear it. We've got to listen. 
We've got to obey. Just, just him making it available is apparently not sufficient. Here you have Samuel, there in, and everyone knows it, and yet no one is going to go to him in this chapter. And it's going to go just the way you think. Starting in chapter 4, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Probably should be connected to chapter 3. That should be part of the last verse of chapter 3. And verse, chapter 4, verse 1 probably should begin with, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. Now, Ebenezer is actually uh, probably not the name of this location yet. We're going to get in a couple of chapters that it's going to be Samuel that names a spot Ebenezer. But it's not called that yet, but that's what's still, it's just like if, you named, if they named a city after you when you're a grown-up someday, but then they go back and tell your biography and they keep using the name of that city to describe where you come from. So it's a little confusing. I told you Samuel kind of does this kind of stuff at times, but it can be a little confusing. But what matters here is they camp there and the Philistines encamp at Aphek. Now, you should naturally ask, who are the Philistines? So you may kind of automatically go, oh, the Philistines, they're the bad guys. If you grew up in church, you know the Philistines are the bad guys um, of the Old Testament, one of the main bad guys. That's all you kind of know about them, kind of like uh, the Pharisees in the New Testament. Like you just automatically know, like, oh, bad guys, this is going to be this is going to be bad, right? So they camp there, they're going to go up against, uh, they decided they're going to fight. They are going to go a battle against the Philistines. So who are they? Well, here's the Philistines. Here's the history. 1,200-ish years before the birth of Christ, a group of people called the Sea Peoples begin to show up in the histories of various nations around the Mediterranean. Uh, this is an example of, a, of a, a, the pictures of them carved into stone, what they looked like carved into stone. The main powers at that time, Egypt and the Hittites, were actually relatively weak at that time. Um, I'm not going to go into details there. And the sea people took advantage of that. So the sea people were, they were raiders. They were like what we think of Vikings. Um, in fact, they're very much like Vikings. They would, they would bring, come in on their ships. They would attack coastal cities. They would uh, pillage and steal and kill. And then they would jump back in their ships and leave before you could gather a big army to fight them. And they did this all through the, down the southern and eastern coasts of the Mediterranean over and over again, kept doing this. And everybody kind of hated them and feared them, but there was just not a lot you could do about them because you couldn't get them to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with you in a pitched battle where you could actually fight them. They were a, like the Vikings, a bloodthirsty, war-loving civilization. They have an artist rendering of maybe what they might have looked like um, as well. Now, I'm going to take issue with one part of the outfit. Um, it's natural uh, because we don't know what colors they wore. Um, it's natural that we automatically assume this bright red headdress. Um, and I could, uh, by the way, I know nothing of what I'm talking about right here. This is purely just my opinion, all right? I'm no archaeologist. Um, but the pictures that I have seen, the first pictures I ever saw of them on stone, the ones of them that have beards, and not all of them did, but the ones that have big beards, is that, is that it creates this full hair effect when they have this spiky thing up here. And so I actually think it's not, not unlikely that they were trying to recreate the look of a lion. That they were going, because that would have been a natural thing, the predators of this era, that they would be doing that, that, that they're going for a mane. This is going to matter more when we talk about um, the main Philistine we all know about, a guy named Goliath in a few chapters. Um, but, but to have this picture um, in our minds as we picture them as these scary, warlike people. So eventually they become powerful enough and wealthy enough, and there's enough of them that they say, as often this happens, that they go, you know what, it's time for us to take our own land, and so they attack Egypt proper. 
Um, they go to the land, they, big up a big, a big, they get their big army, and they go to fight against Egypt. And as normally happens when these warlike um, sea-dwelling cultures do this, is they just get stomped. Um, Ramesses III utterly defeats them. He just destroys them on land. Um, rather than kill them down to the last person, though, Ramses III does something really clever. He places them in several cities along the coast of what we would say is modern Israel. In fact, it was Israel then too. I think we've got a map um, that we can show here. So, so Egypt is down over here somewhere, if you picture it on the map. So Egypt, Egypt is not on the map. But if you come around the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, um, and you have Israel over here, is that you have these cities, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, Gath, and, and what he does, what, the, what Ramses III does, he kicks everybody out of those cities. He just deports everybody out of those cities, and he moves the Philistines into those cities. Now, why would you do that? If you're, if you're down here, why would you want a coast covered with these crazy warlike Klingons, right? Uh, I mean, this is, this is not people you want nearby. Well, it's actually pretty brilliant. One of the only ways to invade Egypt from the north, from, from the Babylon area, from the Mesopotamia area, is to come down this coast towards Egypt. Well now, you've got to march your armies through these five cities of the Philistines, these crazy warlike people who love nothing more than getting in a fight with you. This is what they, they're, they're looking for an opportunity to fight, you're going to bring your armies through, this is their idea of a party. And so you've got to now figure out a way to get through them every time. It also keeps all these other nations just to you north kind of at check. They can never get very far ahead because the Philistines are always creating problems for them. That's who the Philistines were. So verse 2, the Philistines drew up a line against Israel. And when the battle spread, now again, go back. God is in Israel again. His word is there. His visions are there. He has a man there. And the Philistines are going to fight against Israel. This should be really fun, right? This should go great. God is back. What do you think is going to happen? Here's what happens. Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. When the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Now you've got to love. You've got to love the fact that at least they know to ask the right question. They even understand that this is not about the Philistines. The Philistines are just witnesses to their defeat who's defeating them is God. You can imagine how the battle went that day that they're like, oh, this maneuver ought to work, and then it doesn't, and this ought to work, and then it doesn't, and where's well, our strongest people, and then they die, and they're going, it's like God's the one fighting against us. We can't win. Exactly. Sometimes, I do think there's something to that in our own lives. That when we think, oh, I'm going to try this strategy, try this strategy, try this strategy in my, in my marriage or in my life or in my finances or in my business or whatever, and it doesn't work, sometimes it may be because something needs to change about us. It is the right question, and then they come up with a, their, clever, their own clever answer. Notice what they don't do. This should remind us of something. So all through the Bible, especially in Hebrew Scriptures, there are these hyperlinks. Um, to quote the Bible Project guys. There's hyperlinks. It's like a part of the Bible that should be blue with an underline under it, and it makes you want to click it. And you click it, it takes you to another story, and you're like, oh yeah, I thought that reminded me of something. So the people of Israel, it looks like things are going really well for them. They go and face an enemy, and instead of winning, which is what everybody thinks is going to happen, they get shellacked and they've got a bunch of dead people. What does that remind you of? What Bible account does that remind you of? Anybody? Anyone want to guess? No? 
Yeah? We got a couple of guesses. What do you all think? Okay, we're not going to go to World War I. Good, yeah, good try, though. No, let's stick, let's stick with the Bible account. It should remind us of the battle of Ai. So after Joshua has brought, has conquered a Jericho, and they go find this other enemy, Ai, and you always you think it's going to be this huge, great victory, and instead they get, they get defeated, and, and thousands, dozens of them, not thousands at that case, dozens die. What does Joshua do in that moment? He goes to the Lord. He falls on his face before God. God, why have you done this to us? What's going on? What's the problem? It's kind of whiny, but at least he goes to the right person. Notice they don't. There's none of that here. God is, they, know the one God is, they know that God is the one defeating them. Why don't they then they go to him? Joshua knew that too, and Joshua knew to go to him. This is a hyperlink. So instead of repentance, confession, or getting the sin out of the camp, which is what God tells Joshua to do, even praying and talking to Samuel, they come up with a brilliant plan. In fact, here's what's wild. They're about to literally go to where Samuel is, and you're still going to have no conversation with him. Let us, here's their brilliant idea, okay? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant from the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Okay, so we got to stop, pause. What is the Ark of the Covenant? So <clears throat> the good news is I'm not going to show one video from Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> the bad news is I'm showing two. Here's the first one. <laughs> going back to the original. What is, what is the Ark? There's a picture of it right here. That's it. God. Yes, that's just what the Hebrews thought. Uh, now, what's that supposed to be coming out of there? Lightning. Fire. Power of God or something. You're to understand Hitler's interest in this. Oh, yes. The Bible speaks of the ark leveling mountains and laying waste to entire regions. An army which carries the ark before it is invincible. Yeah, that's also what the Hebrews thought. Turns out not to so much be the case. You see, it's not accurate. And by the way, the movie is going to reveal as well by the end for the Nazis who tried to carry it with them as well, it's not going to work out so well. Those of you who have seen the end, spoiler alert. Um, it doesn't work out, out that well. So, so what is this thing? What is this Ark of the Covenant? Well, it's a box. Um, an ark is just something that carries something. That's all that that word means. So it's a box. It's made out of acacia wood. Now, I do have to stop and comment on this because you remember acacia wood is what everything else is made out of in the temple too, gold or acacia wood. Some of that is practical. You can tell by where this tree grows and how it grows that it's tough. It does not decay easily. It resists bugs and decay and, and all that kind of stuff. It's also very, very hard wood. It's a great choice for that. However, most people, or many people, also think it is what the burning bush was. That carries with it some additional significance, a good hyperlink for us. Oh, God is filling all of these implements with the very same tree that he spoke to Moses from and then gave the identity who his name was, for example. Now, um, the, the box itself is 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, overlaid with pure hammered gold, with four gold rings to carry it by running poles made of, out of, of course, acacia wood, which were never to be taken out of it, by the way. It's, it's always supposed to have the poles in it as well. 
So what's cool is every once in a while, Hollywood gets something extremely right. Spielberg did his research. This is actually a pretty good representation of what it might have looked like. Perfect. All right. Now, except for it's showing two men by themselves lifting that much gold, uh, which is not possible. But beyond that, um, uh, it's a pretty good representation. That, that picture of it, that's pretty good. What was inside of it? Well, we know that from Exodus 16, we know that there was a jar of manna inside of it. We know from Numbers 17 that the staff of Aaron that had budded and actually produced almonds was in it. And we know that the original Ten Commandments to quote uh, Indy, it's the actual Ten Commandments, the, the original ones, the ones smashed by Moses when he came down off the mountain, and then apparently the pieces were gathered and put back into the ark, the pieces of the smashed ones that he destroyed with the, um, the golden calf. We get this from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 9, 3-5 says, it is called the holy place, referencing this section um, in the tabernacle. Behind the second curtain is a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar, this is Hebrews 9 by the way, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. This is what the ark looked like. This is what it was made of. But what it was was a radical and lethal representation of the holiness of God. That's what it was. Again, you have to picture a whole culture of people who God has said to them, listen, it's probably not a good idea for me to abide with you. I'm too holy. You are too messed up. You are untrustworthy. You are faithless. You're going to ruin all this. But we want to have this relationship. So he says, I'm going to set in the midst of your camp a tabernacle, a tent, my tent. It's my tent, and my presence is going to dwell there in a special way to give you the opportunity to respond to my holiness in a safe and right way. The Levitical laws, the building of the tabernacle, we should picture that as like the concrete bunker and the hazmat suits meant to keep people alive from the deadly holiness of an almighty God. And if you don't do, what, if you don't do this the way I'm telling you, God says, I'm just warning you, it will kill you. My holiness is that lethal for you as fallen humans. So he sets up all these careful, careful guidelines Ancient writings, just so you know, indicate that the Ark of the Covenant had gone missing by the time Ezra and Zechariah rebuilt the temple, or in the time of Nehemiah, building the walls. Um, they also, by the way, those ancient writings also claim that Jeremiah had hidden it inside of Mount Nebo. And you go, oh, well, then we just need to dig up Mount Nebo and look at it and see if we can find it. Here's Mount Nebo. Got a picture, I think, of Mount Nebo. So good luck with that. Um, it's a huge region in Jordan. Um, if, it's, if it is hidden there, we're not going to find it until God decides to reveal it. Um, there's a chapel in Ethiopia that claims to have it, but of course no one's allowed to go in and see it. There's a huge surprise. Others say it was hidden deep under the Temple Mount. Others say that the Templars or another group found it deep under the Temple Mount. 
Nick Cage seems to think that it's in Washington, D.C. somewhere. Seems like a possibility. Um, amazingly, there's a case to be made that it is lost in Ireland. And that's actually, legit, there's actually a legitimate case. You can already spend, I tell I spent too much time on this this week, can't you? Um, but we all know it was boxed up by the U.S. military and lost forever in American bureaucracy. We all know that that's where it is right now. Leviticus 26 says this, to understand this holy God, to understand this, listen to this. But if you will not listen to me and you will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, if your soul abhors my rules, whew, that's a tough phrase, so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenants, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasted disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. You will show your, sow your seed in vain for your enemies will eat it. I will set my face before you, against you that you will be struck down by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee when none pursue you. And if in spite of all this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And I'll break the pride of your power and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength will be spent in vain for your land will not yield its increase. The trees of the land will not yield their fruit. Then... If you walk contrary to me and you will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. That's who they're dealing with. Listen, trust me on this. You don't want to be on the receiving end of my wrath, God teaches them. Now, back to the understanding we look at Samuel verse. Um, and when the people came from the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Understanding all that we've just unpacked, here's how I read that. Here's what be God's response, if I dare. Oh, by all means, ignore me, and instead of coming to me, go get my box. Break into my house without my invitation, Paw at the ultimate expression of my purity and holiness with your grubby hands, without my instruction, and with even out my, without even my permission. Oh, and certainly have the physical representation of my holiness, judgment, and mercy escorted or, God forbid, carried by the two sons of Eli. You think that God is going to be motivated by that to cease defeating you before the Philistines? It's not. Verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from the ark, from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hopni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. As soon as the ark of covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all of Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. Now again back, recognize they went to the tabernacle and who did they bring with them? The prophet of God who is hearing the word of the Lord Samuel? No. They get the sons of Eli. Great choice. It's unbelievable to me that even in this section, Samuel is not mentioned. Now I think this right here, the Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. That also should be a hyperlink for us. What does it make you think of? Jericho. That's right. There's a great victory of the Lord in which the people did what God commanded. It's just as nutty. They have the Ark of the Covenant. See, this is all the same. What's the difference? This is their plan. That was God's plan. God's plan works out really well. Theirs does not. Remember the extraordinary victory of the God at Jericho? He could be doing that here. Instead, 
When the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come in the camp, the Philistines were afraid, and they said, a God has come into the camp. They said, woe to us, nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of those mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. They aren't afraid of the box. They're afraid of the power behind the box. And where's what's wild? They don't even know that the Hebrew people are monotheistic. Probably because they've not watched the Hebrew people be monotheistic. They have watched them following all these other gods. And there's this one God they've heard about. This is not even a subtle hyperlink. Remember the great victory of Almighty God against the great Egyptians. God could be doing that here. But He's not. So the Philistines say, take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews like they have been for you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home, and there was a great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. There's one of our first things that falls. 30,000 foot soldiers fall. Wow. Wow. Another hyperlink. 30,000 Jewish soldiers. Does that create a hyperlink for anybody? Like to when Gideon was going to fight the Midianites? And he has 30,000 soldiers that gather to fight the Midianites. And God says, nope, too many. So they pare it down to 10,000. And God says, nope, too many. So then God pares it down to 300. That was a great victory. Man, God wiped out 100,000 Midianites with 300 men. What a great victory. God could be doing that here, but He's not. Every one of those was God's plan for victory, not theirs. This is their plan. Verse 11, And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Well, that's about time. I think this is meant to point out what all of this is about. God is fulfilling His condemnation of this family. He's fulfilling His judgment on these two men. Eli knew or should have known that the death of his sons was coming, the sins of his family as representatives of the people to God and of God to the people. And the lack of zeal of the people to correct their sin in their midst have consequences into the tens of thousands of lives. There's no such thing as private sin. We think there is. We think that the private sin in our life doesn't come out in our own pride, in our own justification, in our own other expressions of sin, but it does. It does. It comes out in so many ways. Your community, if you ever tried to really live in community well, in your family or in your neighborhood or with others, you'll discover there's no such thing as truly private sin. They may not know about it, but it affects you and it affects them. And once again, Samuel is silent here. To get all the way through a chapter in which God is doing some crazy stuff, and to have the main person of the story, the main prophet of the story, to not even be referenced is another hyperlink. Anybody know which one I've got in mind? Daniel chapter 3. In Daniel chapter 3, we see these three Hebrew men facing down Nebuchadnezzar, And God rescues them in a mighty way. And the entire time, the main question you have from Daniel chapter 3 is what? Where's Daniel? Where? He's not even mentioned. He's not even here. This may even be another hyperlink. The fact that Samuel is utterly not mentioned 
Someone in the first service even mentioned Esther, where God is not mentioned. But God is doing this mighty thing. What a great picture. This is the shocking line. The ark of God is captured. How is that possible? How is it possible that this holy representation of God's power and His truth and His mercy have been taken, that someone has abused that and stolen it? Here's what struck me. Most people agree, there's no way to prove this, but most people agree that the Bible is the most stolen book in America. Why does God allow that? Why does God allow His his Word to be stolen like that? A few years ago, what we assumed to be some pranksters thought it would be really fun to break a bunch of glass in in our baptismal. Uh, Luckily we caught it. But why would God allow that? It's God's baptismal. Why didn't we go out there and find like the bodies of three teenage boys with glass bottles in their hands like, oh, I wonder what they were about to do that God struck them dead before they could do it. I don't know. Why does God allow that kind of thing? Much worse, think about how our Bibles, we can disdain them or misquote them or maybe worst of all, ignore them. That we leave them on a shelf or in an app totally unopened. What is the Bible? Well, that's a bunch of ones and zeros in this case, or a bunch of paper and ink in somebody else's cases. What is the ark? It's a box. What is the baptismal? It's just a pool of water. This stage, this altar, this pulpit, it's just wood and carpeting. What is that over there in the corner? It's bread and juice. This building is just sheetrock and steel, and none of them can save you. In and of themselves, they have no power to save us. God is not a tool that we use when we choose, and God's gifts are not something that we replace Him with. That's a mistake. The very worst is when we create a God that we're in control of. They literally put God in the box in this story. And God is not, he's not, does not reside in a box in that that's where, that's, that he is not the box. Oh, now, we want to create a God we're comfortable with. Listen, I'm not comfortable with the way God judges people in the Bible. That doesn't make me comfortable. I, don't, I really don't like what he calls sin sometimes. Some of the things he calls sin are things I want to do. I'm not, I'm not comfortable with that. I'm not comfortable with the idea of God condemning people. Yeah, I'll bet. I'm not either. I'm not comfortable with God the way he is. But I don't get to change him. This is the way he is. This is who he is. I'm not comfortable with most of you either. But I don't get to change who you are, right? This is, and none of you are comfortable with me. You don't get to change who I am. This, this is what a relationship is like with an actual real person. Now, are all these examples that I just gave, that you may still be kind of reeling from the way I, I disdainfully reference them, are they powerful portrayals of the physical reality of a spiritual truth? Yes. Case after case they are. Is there a mystery linking these physical things to a spiritual truth? Yes. And it's obviously true of the ark as we're going to see in significant ways. You can come back next week and learn that with the Philistines, by the way, who are going to learn that. But the ark is God's. It isn't God. The church is God's. It isn't God. It's true of those things. At the same time, there is a God and reveals Himself in many ways. There are endless parables and analogies around us to understand Him. He reveals Himself in the juice and in the bread. He reveals Himself in that. He reveals His salvation in the baptismal waters. His holiness and power are revealed in the Ark of the Covenant. 
These are spiritual truths entwined with physical creation and reality all over. They matter, but only because God has assigned them meaning. Whatever it is, that's true of all these different things that we want to worship instead of Him. Our spouses and our kids and our families or, or our future spouse or our future career or our money or whatever it is, all these different things we want to worship in place of Him. He doesn't even save the way we want. He doesn't even offer salvation the way we would choose. That's the bad news. The good news is His plan is better. Let me show you. I left off one part of the description of the ark. It is covered with pure gold and it includes two cherubim, angels, spreading their wings over the cover. And the cover is called the mercy seat. Can we put up that, that first uh, picture of that that I had? The mercy seat. And by the way, the word there, the space between the angels, the angel on one end and on the other, and the space between the angels, where God had mercy, the expression of His mercy, covering His judgment and His wrath is His mercy. And the word there doesn't just mean compassion or letting someone off the hook. It means to pay the price. God's version of mercy isn't that He just goes like, ah, forget about it. Ah, forget it happened. Ignore it. No, no. He says, there's a price to be paid and I will pay it. And when you come to me for mercy, what I do is I'm able to say, your account is paid in full. I took care of it. It's covered. As we were looking at this week, Ginger and I were looking at, and the, and the women's study was looking at this, the, the, the uh, tax collector who in the temple says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The word mercy there isn't the normal Greek word for mercy. It's not just compassion. It is connected to this idea. God, pay the price for me, a sinner. It's a great picture. So I want to close our time with a chance for each of us to throw ourselves on the mercy seat. But in order to do that, I don't have to bring in the Ark of the Covenant. I don't have it. I don't even have to bring in a replica of it so that we could do that. This week, Ginger, as we were talking, reminded me of something that we talked about when we studied John. So if you will, stand with me as we wrap up our time. And our hearts in this time of invitation to be prepared to, to respond, however, in singing and in worship and hearing the truth presented in hymn form or coming and praying here or where you are or meeting with somebody and praying with them over here or, or somebody nearby you. Maybe there's something in your life that you know this would be offensive to the holiness of God and try to figure out how do I turn this over to him and how do I get accountability? How do I deal with these things in my life, whatever they happen to be? I'm not kidding about this. Our lives have to be structured totally different. Our lives need to be filled with repentance. That we look at the things in our life and we are horrified, to use John's word, by our sin. Not as something that we nibble at or that we play at, but that we see that this is a holy God. And He's not winking at our sin. So that we look at this for real. But here's what's amazing. In the midst of that sin, recognize that when we say, here I am, He says, I got a good news for you. I have a mercy seat. And it's better. So in a minute when we sing, if, you want to, if you've already been through the welcome home process and you've talked to Lance and others and you're ready to come join our dysfunctional family, you can do that this morning. But if you need to come pray for any reason here or there, please do so. So put up the other picture as I read from John. Listen, listen to the words of the book of John. 
John chapter 20, verses 2 through 9. So Peter went out with the other disciples, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter. And he reached the tomb first, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded into place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that, they, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the foot. This is our mercy seat. Let's follow in the sacrifice of Christ for our souls. The very words of God. 